On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we will be covering chapter 10 of the Corman Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the bluejacketeer.com podcast for hospital corpsmen. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we will continue with the Hospital Corman Manual. We'll be covering Chapter 10. Be sure to pay attention, because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Chapter 10 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Disinfection and Sterilization. This chapter will go into detail about some important aspects of maintaining our patient's health and preventing the spread of diseases. Disinfection and sterilization has become a cornerstone of proper treatment of patients in healthcare areas around the world. This chapter will explain the process of each and give an overview of the required steps so that you can properly take care of your equipment. Sterilization is the highest level of contamination control. It results in the total destruction of all forms of microbial life. It's important to remember that sterilizing kills existing bacteria, but doesn't prevent future bacteria. For this reason, you need to remember the infection control practices and surgical aseptic techniques when handling sterile items. Disinfection is less lethal than sterilization. It kills disease-causing microorganisms, but it doesn't include the destruction of resistant bacterial spores. Disinfection can be achieved either through chemicals or heat. Which one you will use should be determined by the product you're trying to disinfect. The Environmental Protection Agency has three classifications for disinfectants. High, intermediate, or low, based on the effectiveness, contact time, and activity against the involved microorganisms. Four main factors influence how effective a disinfecting agent will be. The nature of the material, the bio-burden, if organic debris is present, and the type and concentration of the germicide. So, let's specifically discuss the four main types of chemical agents. They're glutaraldehyde solutions, chlorine dioxide solutions, iodophores, and phenolics. Glutaraldehyde solutions are classified as high-level disinfectants. A high-level disinfectant is any chemical agent, mainly used on inanimate objects, to destroy or inhibit the growth of harmful organisms or sterilants. Glutaraldehyde solutions are dangerous, so it's important to always wear impermeable gloves and protective eyewear when using them. Make sure that you also have proper ventilation in the space. Even these vapors can be extremely toxic. 
Immersed items must be rinsed with sterile water before using, and these solutions are not recognized as acceptable surface disinfectants. Chlorine dioxide solutions are effective surface disinfectants or sterilants. This solution can be used for high-level disinfection of semi-critical items. It works quickly to disinfect, needing only three minutes on a surface or item. Six hours are required for sterilization. This solution also needs to be used with protective eyewear and gloves, as it's also irritating to the eyes and skin. This solution will corrode aluminum containers, so be sure to use an alternative when handling it. Iodophores are intermediate-level disinfectants, and some can be used as antiseptics, depending on if the label claims it is tuberculocidal. These consist of iodine and usually a detergent that the iodine will bind with. The biocidal activity of iodophores are accomplished within 10 to 25 minutes after use. The color of an iodophore solution will change from amber to clear as it loses its effectiveness. These are accepted as surface disinfectants but may not be used as sterilants. Phenolics are another intermediate level disinfectant, as long as the label claims that it's tuberculocidal, just like iodophores. When diluted properly, phenolics are used for surface disinfection. They can be used on metal, glass, rubber, and plastic. Phenolics will create a film accumulation. They can degrade some plastics and etch glass if left on too long. Just like all the other solutions that we've covered, gloves and eyewear have to be used when handling phenolic solutions. Some examples of semi-critical items that require chemical disinfection are three-way syringe tips, high-volume evacuator saliva ejector tips, and radiographic positioning devices. Taking care of these and other semi-critical items is an important process, so let's go over how to disinfect them properly. You should start by wiping the item with an absorbent material soaked in the disinfectant. Make sure the solution remains in contact with the item for the length of time that the label states. If the item can withstand sterilization, take it to your facility's CSR for processing. Not all items are semi-critical, however, so the rest of your equipment and surfaces will fall into the non-critical category. Some examples of these are dental delivery systems, meaning the chair, unit, and light, portable dental units, surgical table and chair, and the x-ray apparatus. For chemical disinfecting of these items, be sure to take the following steps. Disinfect all the equipment and table surfaces at least daily. Make sure to use disposable barriers when possible, since that will reduce your workload. Disinfect the headrest when covers aren't available. Make sure to clean and disinfect all hand-operated controls, switches, and handles after each patient. The lamp head and its protective shield might have specific cleaning requirements from the manufacturer, so make sure to consult the manual. Also, make sure to flush HVE and saliva ejector tubing and cuspidor weekly, or more often if needed. 
We've already discussed that sterilization is the highest level of contamination control, and that it destroys all forms of microbial life. So if you're not assigned in the sterilization area of your facility, there's a good chance that you don't know exactly what happens once you turn in your equipment. So let's talk about what happens between drop-off and pick-up at the sterilization facility. The functional flow of CSRs is the receiving area, cleaning, processing, sterilization, sterile storage, and issue. Once you're physically in one area inside the CSR, you can't go backwards or skip a step. This can endanger the entire process. The CSR technician takes contaminated instruments from the receiving area. They're typically wearing heavy-duty puncture-resistant gloves while handling all potentially contaminated items, for obvious reasons. All contaminated reusable items have to be decontaminated by soaking in an EPA-registered disinfectant, like we've talked about, before further handling. If your CSR has an ultrasonic cleaner, that step can be skipped once they're through the cleaner with an EPA-registered disinfectant that also functions as an ultrasonic cleaning solution. Every single instrument that comes into the CSR will be processed through one of the following methods. The automated washer processor, ultrasonic cleaning, or manual scrubbing. We'll go over them from most to least preferable. Automated washer processors are essentially glorified heavy-duty dishwashers. Contaminated instruments are placed inside cassettes or baskets, run through the cycle of cleaning, rinsing, and disinfecting, giving it a high level of disinfection. The whole process creates a no-touch system, where the chance of a technician being injured is greatly reduced, <laughs> meaning less time at sick call. Ultrasonic cleaning eliminated the chance of an accidental puncture wound on the hands, which can happen a lot with manual scrubbing. Also, you won't have to deal with a splatter of organism-laden debris created by scrubbing with a brush. This cleaner uses electrical energy to create actual sound waves, which create millions of tiny bubbles that form and burst continuously as it travels through the liquid. This is called cavitation. Intricate surfaces and areas that are difficult to reach are cleaned, since cavitation occurs anywhere the liquid can reach, which is essentially everywhere. Since ultrasonic cleaners are relatively intricate machines, there are some specific guidelines and rules to keep in mind when it's being prepared and used. First, always make sure the reservoir is one-half to three-quarters full with ultrasonic solution. This will help ensure that the solution completely covers the items placed inside. Don't use disinfectants, plain water, or non-ultrasonic soaps or detergents. Make sure you have rinsed the items with water, using a perforated or wire mesh basket to eliminate any easily removed contaminants before placing them inside of the actual unit. Always close the lid completely. This will keep aerosols from the CSR and avoid the solution that's inside the machine splattering all over the outside of the cleaner. Lastly, limit cleaning time to 5 minutes to avoid damaging the instruments. Always refer to the manufacturer's instructions for an exact cleaning time for your model of ultrasonic cleaner. 
So next we have manual scrubbing. This is obviously the most time consuming and again, obviously, potentially dangerous method of cleaning instruments. But this method can be used when an automated washer processor or ultrasonic cleaner isn't available. A typical triple sink module will let a CSR technician use a sequence of pre-rinsing, soaking, washing, and one more rinse. The tech must wear heavy-duty utility gloves, a face mask, plastic apron, and eye protection. Essentially, they're going into an OR. It's best to scrub instruments while they're under the disinfecting solution to allow them to soak, A, and B, avoid generating too much splatter. Okay, so we're walking through this, right? You're in the CSR, and you've just finished cleaning the instruments for sterilization. After the instruments have dried, the instruments have to be inspected for wear, breakage, and cleanliness. I mean, there's no reason to continue with the sterilization process if the instrument's broken anyway. Instruments have to be sorted according to sets or packs. This pre-stages the instruments before they're wrapped and packed. Instruments should be sorted according to sets or packs. Obviously, this will make it easier once they are sterile to, say, make a suture removal kit or any other kind of common instrument pack that you can just hand off to a clinic or whoever comes to pick up the instruments. Now that we're talking about wrapping and packaging, it's the last step before sterilization. Consumable supplies are typically included in these packs, so make sure any needles, cotton rolls and pellets, gauze, aluminum foil, internal indicators, towels, and whatever else is needed for the pack is inside before wrapping. Now, rubber tubing is handled a little differently. It has to be washed in an antiseptic detergent solution. After you rinse it well, place it flat or loosely coiled in the wrapper or container. Let's go over some important things to remember not to do before we continue. Never re-sterilize surgical drains. If you've seen a surgical drain, it should be obvious why. They're disgusting. Never re-sterilize rubber catheters that have a disposable label. Never re-sterilize surgical disposable gloves. And don't place surgical knife blades or suture materials inside linen packs or on the instrument trays before sterilization. Another important note, as if this isn't what the entire podcast is full of, is that the only exception to this is in the sterilization and use of surgical stainless steel. Now, if you're familiar with this, you probably know it's typically supplied in unsterile packages or tubes, so obviously you're going to have to sterilize them. Uh, so individual strands or entire packages have to be sterilized before use. The paper materials that are used with sterilization can be flat wraps or bags. Both are sealed with adhesive indicator tape. Now, the combination paper-plastic peel packs that I'm sure almost all of us are familiar with. They come in various sizes or even rolls that can be custom cut to the needed length. The type of packing that you pick for the instrument will depend on the type of packing materials and if they can withstand steam or dry heat sterilization. Heat sealed plastic or nylon tubing should only be used as an overwrap. Uh, but the important aspect of heat sealed plastic or nylon uh, is that it will greatly extend shelf life uh, from 30 days to 180 days. 
So depending on the practical use of some of the semi-critical items that we've talked about or that you may use in your clinic or facility, it might not be possible to wrap the item without the danger of puncturing or injury during post-treatment. For these items, use a tray or cassette to contain the item. Ensure that wrapping is loose to allow steam to circulate, getting around the instrument completely. Make sure you open all the hinged instruments so that they're totally open, and fold the ends of the indicator tape down so that whoever's inside the room dealing with the patient, they can easily grab the edges of that tape that you just folded and open the package better. After instruments and supplies are wrapped or placed in containers or sealed, they have to be labeled with the ID number of the sterilizer, the technician's initials, the dates of sterilization, and the expiration date before they get placed in the sterilizer. There's a good chance that that could be on the test. Use an ink marker, pre-printed indicator tape, or a marking device that won't run or fade while it's inside the sterilizer. So, I just touched on shelf life a little bit. Uh, Let's talk about it. So there's two types of shelf life. There's time-related and event-related. These shelf lives determine if an item is safe to use. It'll be up to your infection control officer to determine which method your sterilization program uses. So time-related shelf life, right? It uses an exact expiration date. After that date, it's outdated and it can't be used. This depends on the wrapping method, though. And uh, there are some timetables inside of BUMED 6600.10 series that we can reference when we want to know how long a certain type of package lasts. So I'll talk about them really quick. So if you have a paper envelope that's sealed with sterilization tape, that's good for 365 days. If you have a non-woven blue wrap, 30 days. For non-woven blue wraps covered in plastic and heat sealed, 365 days. Uh, Those peel plastic packs, like I mentioned earlier, that most of us are familiar with, those last for 365 days. There's also parchment paper and denison wrap. Each of those lasts for 30 days. Now, something that not all of you are probably familiar with, uh, but they have these glass test tubes with screw caps. Uh, Those are the only wrapping method that have an indefinite time-related shelf life. So again, it's dependent on your command's infection control officer, whether you use time-related shelf life or event-related. So that was time. So event shelf life. That assumes that a sterile package is always sterile until it's damaged, wet, or torn. If this method is used, the command policy has to be clearly defined and consistent throughout the facility, so everybody has to follow this. So when this method is used, all the sterilizers have to be biologically monitored at least weekly. So we'll get over to monitoring techniques uh, here in just a few minutes. So, But first, before we get there, Uh, Sterile storage. We have to talk about this really quick. So sterile storage is a crucial part of this process. Obviously, what good is a sterile equipment pack if you can't keep it sterile? So after the sterilization process is complete, 
items have to be allowed to dry before they can be handled or stored. Uh, the time it takes for everything to dry will depend on the type of packs in the load and the sterilizing agent that was used. You have to remember you can't place a freshly sterilized item on a metal or cold surface. Uh, condensation will obviously happen and the package can become damp from the condensation and become contaminated. Event-related shelf life, right? When storing sterilized items, make sure you arrange them according to expiration date. We've all heard of, you know, FIFO, first in, first out. So put the later expiration dates back towards the back. So I keep promising that we'll talk about this. So let's talk about the uh, methods of sterilization, some of the types of sterilizers, some forms of sterilization monitoring, and when and how biological monitoring is done. After you clean and rinse an item prior to sterilization, the next decision that you have to make is what method will be most appropriate for sterilizing. Uh, the factors that will affect this decision are how the item will be used, the material it's made out of, and the methods available. Physical methods of sterilization include a moist heat under pressure and dry heat. There are chemical methods too, and those are gas and liquid solutions. So first we'll cover some physical methods of sterilization. There's autoclaving, or steam under pressure, and this is the most dependable and economical method of sterilization. You're probably familiar with this if you've ever been on a ship. Autoclaving should be used uh, for metalware, glassware, most rubber goods, and dry goods. The idea behind this method, right, is to wrap the items so that the steam will come into contact with all the surfaces of the article. Two of the most common types of steam sterilizers that you'll see that, uh, that are used in the Navy are the downward displacement, or gravity, and pre-vacuum. Uh, it's a high temperature sterilizer. So when the sterilizing temperature is increased, the time required for sterilization to complete goes down. Uh, so here are some practical sterilization time periods for you. 250 degrees Fahrenheit. It takes about 30 minutes. 273 degrees Fahrenheit. takes about 10 minutes. So any operating room that's equipped with flash sterilizers, uh, they can sterilize at 270 degrees for only three minutes. Super high tech. Next we have dry heat sterilizers, and this is the least expensive form of heat sterilization. So it works by heating up air and transferring that heated air into the chamber with the instruments. The temperature for dry heat sterilizer uh, is going to be a little higher, typically between 320 and 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Just like most other things, the time period uh, for the instruments to cook, in quotes, uh, will depend on the manufacturer instructions. But a typical dry heat cycle is around 90 minutes at 320 to 345 degrees Fahrenheit. So some of the chemical sterilization techniques there is vapor sterilization. Uh, vapor uses a mixture of chemicals, including alcohol, awesome, 
formaldehyde, ketone, acetone, and water. So these are all heated under pressure to form a sterilizing gas. Sterilizing with this method will typically require somewhere between 20 to 40 minutes at 270 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, like I said, uh, these are heated under pressure. So you're going to want to look for about 20 PSI with this method. So most of us have never heard of a steroid sterilizer. I'm included in that. Uh, so we're going to talk about it. A steroid sterilizer is a huge... Uh, think of like an industrial fridge. This thing's big. Uh, steroid sterilizer. They use plasma state hydrogen peroxide. These types of sterilizers can only be used for products that can't withstand steam sterilization. And they have to have been approved in writing for sterilization by this method from the device manufacturer. So some new things to remember when using a steroid machine. There can be no absorbable materials, such as like cellulose or foam uh, or linen. None of that can be placed inside. Also, trays can't touch the sides of the chamber. And peel packs need to be placed like on their side, kind of standing up in a tray or resting against a tray. Again, you can't have anything touching the sides of this thing. So the steroid sterilizer, how does it work, right? So there are five stages. There's vacuum, injection, diffusion, plasma, and vent. Now I'm sure without going into each one of those in super detail, you can probably infer what goes on with each. So the vacuum stage, it removes all the air molecules and lowers the chamber pressure. Then the injection stage comes in and it puts the hydrogen peroxide into the chamber. The diffusion stage takes the hydrogen peroxide vapor and makes it penetrate the sterilization package, right? Area from higher concentration to lower. Then the plasma state comes in and it uses a radio frequency to create an electromagnetic field, which sounds awesome. Uh, and it turns the hydrogen peroxide into a low temperature gas plasma. So then uh, you got to make it safe, right, to open. So the vent stage is last, and it lets air into the chamber so that it can return to an atmospheric pressure. So luckily, again, because I just kind of talked about safety very briefly, uh, the, these sterilizers come with an alarm that will indicate the completion of the process. Now, records for these steroid machines, they're stored for 36 months. So I touched briefly on liquid uh, sterilization, liquid chemical sterilization. So there's only one liquid that if properly used, like perfectly used, can sterilize an item safely. It's glutaraldehyde. So an item has to be submerged in glutaraldehyde solutions for 10 hours to sterilize. If you take it out any sooner, it's only disinfection, and then you've compromised the whole... Uh, CSR process like I mentioned earlier and you got to start all over with probably everything so the BUMED 6600.10 series it talks about some critical category items that have to be sterilized uh, they're surgical instruments hand pieces burrs and diamonds and endodontic files and gates glidden burrs 
So we've been talking a lot about sterilizers, and if you've never seen one somehow, you got to realize these are these are intricate maintenance-heavy machines. They depend on each piece and part performing perfectly. I mean, we're talking about the elimination of all of microbial life. Um, so everything has to work exactly as designed in order for it to be effective. For this reason, uh, there are a lot of factors that can reduce the effectiveness of sterilizers. Um, some of these that you want to avoid are things like overloading the sterilizer, putting too much in at once, um, wrapping the instruments improperly. Uh, there are gaskets and seals all over these things, and if they get worn, it can compromise the, the sterilization. So the reason I'm talking about all this is to lead into sterilization monitors. So we have sterilization monitors uh, to make sure that anytime we put anything into these sterilizers that, uh, that it works well and that all microbial life is, is destroyed. So there are three common types of sterilization monitors that the Navy uses. They're physical, chemical, and biological. So physical monitoring. Anybody and their grandmother can do this. All you have to do is look at and record the temperature, uh, the pressure, and the exposure time of each of the cycles of sterilization. So doing this over time, obviously you'll be able to see a trend of, oh, hey, the sterilization, uh, the sterilizer isn't hitting the temperature that it should. So we need to do maintenance. And then somebody else gets to earn a paycheck. So other than physical monitoring, we have chemical monitoring. Uh, this uses a heat-sensitive chemical, so it changes color when the correct sterilization conditions are met, when the right temperature, when the right time, yada yada. When all that happens, this thing changes color, and you know that the sterilization works. So um, <clears throat> we also have internal indicators. These are chemical dyes. These are probably what you use. You actually put this inside the instrument pack before you finally wrap it up prior to sterilization. Um, so it's designed to indicate if sterilization actually happened and to make sure that all bacteria has been killed. So the CDC recommends at least weekly, but preferably daily monitoring using these internal, uh, internal monitors. After biological test units are put through the sterilization cycle, they have to be incubated. So biological monitors, these are the much more intense sort of monitor. You don't just put this inside the pack, wrap it up, sterilize it, and oh, it changes color. Okay, good. Um, and you know it works. So, But biological monitors are, are more intense. Um, they're designed to indicate whether the sterilization actually happened and to make sure that all bacteria and even endospores have been killed. So... Uh, we're going to talk about the process, but first, the CDC wants you to do this at least weekly, but preferably daily, this uh, biological monitoring process. So you put this biological test unit through a sterilization cycle, right? Then they have to be incubated. Uh, there, there will be manufacturer instructions that come with them. They have to be incubated, and there will be a pH indicator uh, little 
think of it like a think of it like a pill. Um, so this thing changes color when the ampules germinate and produce acids. Uh, if you get a change in color, it's that's bad. It means a failure in the sterilization process. If you get a positive test, um, there are a few new steps that you have to take. So first, you have to notify your infection control officer. And what what do we say, right? If it's not documented, it didn't happen. So you have to record the test results inside your sterilization log for that unit specifically, because you're going to put this thing out of commission, right? So make sure that you're not that you're not requiring maintenance on something that isn't broken. So you're going to get a test kit together uh, with a new chemical and biological monitor, and you're going to secure it, shut it down um, from anybody using it until those results are read. If those tests come back negative, meaning that it's good, the sterilizer can be put back into service. If positive, as in like a second time, keep the sterilizer secured and you need to call biomed. They need to come and do their thing and earn their paycheck. So this concludes our lesson for chapter 10 of the Corman manual. Uh, this has been fun. I hope that you were able to learn something and apply some of this information to your daily job. If nothing else, maybe go help out your CSR be like, Hey, I listened to this podcast. Let me hang out. Just remember at Blue Jackets here, we always try to bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Next, there will be an audio quiz for the lesson, so make sure to look for that. And our next actual lesson, not audio quiz, but our next actual lesson, will be covering chapter 11 of the Corman Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson, and uh, stay Navy and keep working for that next rank. Thank you.